The Artificial Intelligence Podcast. AI in real life. Whenever people ask me where I'm from, my answer tends to surprise them. I grew up 100% in the Netherlands, but then how come I sound like a valley girl? The answer, I watch a lot of Netflix. And before there was Netflix, I watched a lot of The Bold and the Beautiful. And before my mom allowed me to watch that, I watched a lot of animated shows about various superheroes. You might say I learned my first tidbits of English from watching Spider-Man. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because with AI, it feels like all of us have suddenly come in possession of these amazing abilities. Like we've been bitten by a spider and we're testing our new shiny powers. Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. And Joseph Siraj, CTO AI at Microsoft, put it this way. AI offers the possibility to empower all of us. And all of us have a role to play in using AI for good. But what does good mean? Different people will have different definitions, often driven by differing values. My name is Liang Wang, and at the World Summit AI, organized by Inspired Minds in collaboration with Microsoft, I was lucky enough to meet up with Ajung Moon, Senior Advisor on Digital Cooperation to the Secretary General of the UN. She explains to me the importance of our values in the context of AI. I wear multiple hats on any given day. Um, today I'm wearing a couple of different hats, the first of which is as a Senior Advisor of the United Nations. Secretary General's panel on a high-level panel on digital cooperation. Um, what that means is I take a look at different uh, substantive research on digital technologies, how people cooperate together, uh, and be able to bring it up to the panel members. So, so the panel is essentially looking at how can we address issues brought forth by digital technologies in a cooperative way. Uh, so I'm essentially in the Secretariat supporting role of that. Mm -hmm. The other hat that I wear is as a CEO of Generation R Consulting, which I'm temporarily on leave to support uh, as a secretariat. Um, Generation R Consulting is a consultancy that specifically looks at AI ethics and how to implement values into the businesses and their operations uh, as they are innovating with predictive algorithms. So why do, why do values matter so much in the implementation of artificial intelligence in particular? Values are really, really important because one of the things that AI does is it actually plays with our decision making. It sometimes replaces that decision that humans used to make or it assists or manipulates them. Right. It definitely influences how we made decisions before. Exactly. Um, and when you think about ethics, you know, there are no ethics dilemmas if there's no decisions to be involved. And every single decision that we make are based on our values, human values. So it's incredibly important to look at what are some of the values that we should be prioritizing as we're innovating with these technologies because they will be making some decisions for us or exactly. getting people to make certain decisions for us. And I mean, that sounds absolutely true and sensible, but how do you figure out what those values are? Mm -hmm. Um, at Generation R, one of the approaches that we, we have taken is to really interview people. We analyze the networks of key individuals that we should be studying. Uh, we ask them specific questions to tease out those values because typically if I were to ask you, you know, what are your top three values, 
no idea. Exactly,、um, and that's the same case for most people. But when you ask them about their work, what's important to you in your personal life, etc., etc., then they tend to explain things where values tend to trickle up. And from that, in those interviews, we extract: okay, this person is expressing the value of trust in a specific way.、Um, and when you do a lot of these interviews throughout a particular organization, you can see certain patterns where people are really aligned in specific values, but really not.、Hmm. So, do you have an example of、um, a situation where people were really not aligned value-wise? Yes,、uh, autonomy is one. Actually,、uh, mismatch of autonomy. So, in one of the one of the works that we did with、uh, our client,、uh, Technical Safety BC, we were looking at how does creating a predictive algorithm that will assist their employees be interplaying with the autonomy of those those employees, so、right. professional autonomy. Now, from the management's perspective, they thought, you know, having this predictive algorithm to help you make decision, better decisions—that sounds like a great idea, right?、Um, so to make your life easier, exactly. So that would actually help with their autonomy. Whereas the perspectives from the employee side was, well, okay, this is the one decision that is very important in my job, because if I make the wrong decision, then it may end up in, you know, a missing of a specific safety accidents, etc., etc. So they they were really worried about that, protecting that autonomy.、Um, so in that case, you can see a clash of how autonomy is interpreted differently with respect to this particular right te-、uh, te- technology. Yeah. When talking about collaboration. Uh, and best practices. How how do you look at the AI and machine learning community? Actually, one of the one of the cool aspects about AI machine learning community is that open source exists in this space、uh, quite predominantly, and that means a lot of cooperation by many different individuals and different companies,、uh, be it, you know people in companies or a hobbyist,、um, and that has really enabled people to pull together.、Uh, Common ways to share models, or be able to create、uh, different models, and be able to build on each other statistical models as well. Yeah.、Um, so things like PyTorch, and you know, a lot of people use、uh, TensorFlow from、yeah. Google.、Um, those are really good examples of how people are looking at standard practices as something that can actually help them. Uh, move forward with their projects without starting from scratch, if you will. Yeah, it's something we've noticed、um, at this conference as well. How there seems this, you know, sense of community and sense of sharing because somehow in our gut we all realize we can go so much faster together. Exactly. Yeah. And apart from open source, I mean, there is a there's a lot of discussions about、uh, the data. You know, data ownership is a huge issue as well, and and privacy issues related to that.、Um, so there's a lot of people who may be thinking, okay,、uh, if I share my my lump of data, then it may be a re- legal risk for for the company. Or、um, data is new oil, so I should hog it so that I can be profitable.、Uh, but there's also another camp of of, of Thought where people are thinking, you know, sharing of data is a great idea because if you have、uh, data from this part of the world and this other aspect of the same world, and we can mash it together, we can learn things that are really, really cool that we couldn't do before.、Um, so there are really interesting cases where data sharing is actually uh, being uh, 
being advocated, if you will, even in a corporate world. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, you know, your task force, which I think is supposed to be there for nine months, mm-hmm. very short. Right. So nine months from now, when will it be a success? What will be necessary for you to look back and be like, we did it? Yeah, so right now we are looking, um, so the panel is looking at the digital cooperation from different, three different aspects. Mm-hmm. So specifically looking at values and principles. So what kind of values and principles are relevant to the digital realm? Uh, secondly, we're looking at methods and mechanisms. What kind of ways and means we can cooperate together? And uh, lastly, would be looking at illustrative areas. You know, in, in which corners of the digital stories do we find successful uh, stories of people actually cooperating and aligning digital technologies to to foster um, in a way that really is aligned with everyone's. So, what are those best practices? Exactly. Yeah. Have you seen any examples that are really ex- inspiring to you, and you feel like we should scale that up somehow? Um, rather than giving you an example, we have a call for, call for calls for input where we're actively looking for digital stories mm-hmm. so that people can contribute some of these stories. Um, we also have a survey out on our website, digitalcooperation.org, uh, where everyone can participate and tell us really about what are some of the issues that matter to you most and where are places where you've seen digital cooperation happen. Values are crucial to building a shared understanding and having a common definition of these values even more so. Ajahn Moon, Senior Advisor Digital Cooperation, United Nations. This sounds straightforward, but I for one am not used to considering my values nor my biases explicitly. A lot of it is unconscious, rooted in history, culture, upbringing, but can still have real consequences. Kanta Dihal from Cambridge University investigates the very real impact of the stories we tell and have told one another since the beginning of humanity about artificial life forms. How do the stories we've known for centuries influence the technology that's being developed right now? So people come with all kinds of expectations about what AI is and what it can do. People come with hopes and fears about intelligent machines that have been around basically ever since we started to first think about that possibility. Um, So for instance, AI is hoped to be able to fulfill all our desires. So it's conceived of as some kind of ultimate technology. It will solve all our problems and it will make us immortal and we'll never have to work again and we can only and um, we can spend all our time doing things that we enjoy etc right that's the promise yes that's the promise but at the same time people are afraid that it might go wrong and we might lose control over such an advanced technology and that we might not become immortal but that instead it will kill us all hmm. right so how does that impact what we're doing you know today and tomorrow So, for instance, one way in which the AI narrative shaped the way in which uh, we think about and then start developing the AI is the kinds of gender expectations that come with uh, developing these technologies. Because if you look at what kinds of hopes AI is expected to fulfill, for instance, one of the hopes is that it will help us do things that we don't want to do. Right, right. So that's why 
why we came up with digital assistants like Cortana, Siri, Alexa, and these are based on older systems that are, were called Eliza, there's Amazon's Echo. Those are five examples of digital assistants that have female names. Mm. And all of these assistants were launched with female voices. And those expectations about what they are supposed to do are based in much longer narratives and ideas about what kinds of roles are taken up by what kinds of genders. And it's funny that you mention that because it's not just their names and their voices, it's also developers and scientists actually talking about these algorithms as if she were a person. Like, I, I can hear people say things like, oh, she was flaky today, or she's still waking up, or, or th things like that. Yes, I mean, we as humans have this tendency to anthropomorphize, and that is perfectly natural. So we have a tendency to attribute agency and personhood to things, basically to pretend they're alive. Right, right. And I think everybody's been swearing at their laptop, uh, at their phone at some point, when it's not working, Um, and that's fine. That is something understandable. But the consequences of anthropomorphization, one of them is gendering. We automatically gender when people anthropomorphize. And it's really difficult. Uh, for instance, if you introduce someone to a robot and you say, um, this is my robot and uh, it is able to do this and this, people will always go for he or she in referring to that robot. And that is based on what gender associations they have when seeing that robot. So what patterns have you discovered on when we associate an algorithm with a he versus a she. So it depends on what kind of roles the AI fulfills. So I think this best illustrated with a couple of fictional examples. So we have a very old uh, fictional stories about intelligent machines. And perhaps the oldest one is... Um, Hephaestus's um, handmaidens. So the Greek god Hephaestus uh, was crippled. He was um, born with a defective leg and he couldn't walk very well. And he, um, according to Homer in the Iliad, he had golden handmaidens. So women that he had built and designed himself, which hel helped him out in his forge, basically. So in that very first imagination of an intelligent machine, an AI is a serving woman. But there are other stories of what Hephaestus also um, built, and that is Talos. And Talos is a bronze warrior. Talos was described, for instance, in the Argonautica as a gigantic bronze man that patrolled the island of Crete and that uh, threw boulders at invaders. Hmm. And I, I guess, like, more recently, you see that in the Terminator, which is obviously a man. Exactly. So it's the same idea, just coming back again and again um, from um, 800 BC uh, to, you know, 1987 right. when the Terminator came out. Right. And we know that biases are a big, play a big role in creating the algorithms behind AI. How are these stories influencing how we program our algorithms today? The narratives feed into um, a cycle of injustice uh, that we are investigating uh, at my research center. So um, with uh, my co-author, Stephen Cave, um, we've identified this uh, cycle where um, 
we start off with social injustices that already exist. So it is, it is the case right now in our society that there is gender discrimination, racial discrimination, um, all these kinds of injustices. Those feed into the development of the technology in two ways. On the one hand, People who go into AI development carry with them those uh, biases and those stereotypes and expectations. So this rather homogenous group of current AI researchers, I mean, in Silicon Valley, it is very homogenous. Mm -hmm. It is mostly white men um, who have all these biases and develop products that reflect those biases. On the other hand, in machine learning, those systems are trained by um, data sets. And those data sets are collections of data um, of, uh, taken from the past decades or so. And so they reflect sometimes even biases that we haven't had in the most recent decades. Right. So they reflect even older biases. Yes, you have a massive amount of data, but um, what kind of data, what kind of uh, social injustices does this reflect? Right. What kind of conclusions can you draw from that data? Exactly. So on the one hand, you have the machine learning systems that are designed uh, by people who have stereotypes and on the other hand those systems then learn from data sets that also reflect biases and so with those two kinds of biases fed into them those systems are then deployed and just let out into the world where they sometimes do massive damage uh, before they are being called back uh, as people discover that they carry right. these biases. Right. I think we have the habit to reflect these things on AI as a technology when actually maybe we should reflect on you know us as human beings and what we are trying to do or to accomplish with the technology. Exactly, because once the um, AI gets deployed into the world and starts um, changing things there, then that influences the narrative that is being told about AI in the field. So um, how uh, news coverage of AI um, but also fiction reflects on new technologies and it very often just focuses on the technologies themselves and their consequences rather than the processes that feed into technology that behaves in that way in the first place. Right. And what kind of effect is that going to have on children growing up right now and watching the news? I think it's worrying that these... Uh, so these narratives reflect um, a status quo of the technology that is not very encouraging. And especially when these stories show how, on the one hand, AI is gendered, is biased, um, and you know, uh, one of the great hopes of, that people have for AI is that we'll, it will start looking like a beautiful woman. And on the other hand, the people developing AI are basically always white men, whether they're portrayed as such in fiction or covered as such in, uh, on the news. I mean, what is that going to do for the expectations of the average 14-year-old girl who is 
starting to look at her career options if she knows what an AI researcher is supposed to be like and what an AI is supposed to look like or what we want from AI and whether she wants to contribute to that. Right. So both in the technology and in the narrative surrounding it, we're actually at least running the risk of perpetuating injustices and stereotypes that are already existing. Absolutely. And if those narratives uh, then prevent people from entering that workforce, of course that workforce is not going to get more diverse and that means that the same stereotypes held by the same group of people will continue to exist there. How do we break this cycle? Well, one thing that um, I try to do with the AI Narratives project is to show people that there are alternative narratives. There are people who have been thinking about ways in which AI can break this cycle uh, in fiction, um, but also in non-fiction. But I mean, for every Terminator picture that you use to... Um, you know, make your uh, news story look more attractive. There are alternative films that you could rely on or alternative uh, books that you can point to. And so what we try to do is uh, facilitate um, access to these stories. And um, if they come from different cultures and different languages where people think differently about AI, then we try to get them out in translation and bring them out to large platforms so that people are more informed about other ways of imagining AI. Where can we find these diverse narratives on AI? Um, so, for instance, if you're looking for uh, a film that uh, breaks the gender stereotypes, I would recommend the film uh, Conceiving Ada, which stars Tilda Swinton as an AI researcher. So, a woman AI researcher, and she develops an AI that doesn't look like um, a super masculine soldier bot or a super feminine uh, attractive sex bot. Instead, the AI looks like a bird. Because why not? So go watch Kant at the Hall's recommended Conceiving Ada. Go work in AI, especially if you don't consider yourself that kind of person. And if you already do, continuously reflect on the impact of your unconscious biases. Ilse Verdiese, major in the Dutch Armed Forces, who also researches the ethics of autonomous weapons at Delft University, talks about how to apply these principles in one of the most hotly debated fields, the military. Ilse, tell me, how did this combination come across? Yeah, um, well, I started uh, my career in the army 23 years ago. Um, I've been a logistic officer for most of the time. I um, re got retrained to an IT professional uh, on an applied level. Um, and then I was involved in doing a lot of IT projects, uh, implementing large logistical systems. Um, and then I got the opportunity to study at Delft University of Technology uh, and doing a master's program. Yeah, in my master's the, uh, uh, program, I got involved in a summer school on yeah. responsible artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started wondering uh, what does responsible artificial intelligence has for uh, has implications for my uh, profession so from a military uh, profession what yeah. can we do with those type of technologies um, and and how can we do that in a responsible manner and then you stumble upon the whole debate on uh, autonomous weapons right so the opportunities you saw but also the the debate i guess that you heard going on triggered you in in learning more about this yeah, and then um, what I found is there's a, the, the debate is intense, it's very uh, polarized, um, it's very black-white. Um, 
uh, a lot of strong views and opinions are, are, um, are uh, voiced. Um, and I was wondering, okay, so I, I read this in the academic literature. I see it on, on the online media and social media and uh, the debates at the UN level. How does that impact my military work? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we think as military professionals uh, of autonomous weapons? Um, do we actually uh, see potential benefits of them? Uh, what are the risks involved? Um, how do we want to mitigate those risks? Uh, so we started. So I started reading up on that and, and doing some practical, uh, as we call it, academic literature, empirical research uh, towards the acceptability and uh, the moral values uh, regarding autonomous weapons. And what were your findings? Um, well, f- first of all, I was very lucky to, to work um, uh, at the MIT Media Lab. I, I studied abroad for five months uh, in a, a great research group. Uh, so I got a lot of support from uh, people who work at both MIT and Harvard, um, and looking from a cognitive psychologist's perspective. So mm-hmm. what do people feel? Uh, I worked with a lot of philosophers, so I'm also looking at the philo- philosophical side. And I looked at um, artificial intelligence as a more from a technical perspective. And what I saw, and I was j- just submitted a paper on it, is that um, a lot of people have some have concerns. Even my military colleagues have concerns about these type of weapons, um, and that's okay. We were not quite sure what are these type of weapons, uh, and what do they bring for the future. So that's one of the things that I want to see through. How can we work um, more with and build up some trust in these type of weapons and yeah. see how we can implement those? Yeah, because where do these concerns come from? Where does this um, fear come from? I think a part of the, uh, what I've noticed is that everybody reacts quite strongly to the, to the topic. Yeah, it's uh, very emotional somehow, yeah, right? Yeah, so I try, I'm trying to figure out um, where does that emotion come from? So what's, what triggers the fear? And I think it's part because we don't fully uh, see how predictable they are. We, we don't know um, if we can predict all the actions that they will take. There's an there's a uncertainty in it. And we don't, have a much, uh, we don't have a lot of experience with it. So there's always a little bit of fear of the unknown and um, a a fear of those type of weapon systems getting out of control um, and not doing what we um, intend them them to do. To what extent do you feel that's ground in reality? To to what extent do you feel like it's realistic that we will actually lose control of autonomous weapon systems, for instance? I think we, um, as as designers of systems and and, uh, people who actually are uh, are going to use them, we need to um, implement measures to uh, remain in control. And that's part of my PhD uh, topic that I'm researching. How do we remain or keep, as we call it, human oversight over those type of weapons? So I think we, uh, before we start using them, we should think about how do we make sure that we don't get those unattended actions and that we uh, that they actually the systems will do what we think they should do. Right. So what are the restrictions that we need to design or what kind of things do we need to think about um, when we choose to use autonomous systems, you know, when we choose to use them or when we choose not to use them? Uh, well, one, one very um, uh, good uh, one criteria we always have to abide by is uh, international humanitarian law. They, there are a few principles um, that guide our military operations. For example, uh, the, the principle of, principle of um, proportionality and discrimination. Um, these principles also guide the use of autonomous weapons. So in that framework, we have a, a process, a decision-making process, which we call the targeting process, in which we uh, think through all the steps that we need to take before we want to uh, uh, achieve a military effect. 
Um, and there are often uh, there are a lot of options uh, to be considered if you actually have to use a weapon or not. Because mm-hmm. maybe you can achieve the same effect by uh, a non, as we say, a non-kinetic uh, option, like the, talking to people or um, explaining more what we're doing. Instead of you don't always choose to use a weapon. Right. So I think if we use autonomous weapons, we should also use them in that decision framework. And when you think about the decision framework and how important it is that it captures our values, who should decide, like how do you figure out whether you've done it right? Who should decide whether the machine is making the right decision or the wrong decision? Yeah, that's that's a very uh, tricky part. In a lot of AI systems right now, there is no supervisory board or stamp of approval. This this system uh, upholds our values. Exactly. Um, and there's also not a not. And then which values do you uphold? So that's that's a really hard uh, decision uh, and question to to answer. That's why we um, are really looking towards um, international frameworks from uh, the international humanitarian law, which has been around for many many decades already, uh, and guide. Us, have guided us throughout our operations to okay, we know this works. Can we still use that? Uh, and can we apply it in a manner that to those type of weapons uh, also? Yeah. So that framework is basically, it captures, I guess, our values and our principles as human beings. Um, and it guides our human decision making. So it also guides, should guide our autonomous decision making. Yeah. Yes. So how is that going to impact the technology? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. That, that's a hard one because how do you design those principles in technology? Maybe it's it's that's one of the things I would like to uh, figure out in my research. I'm not sure how we should do that, if it's possible or not. Um, can you can you actually build it in a machine, or should you have a decision-making process uh, around the use of the machine? I'm yeah, I'm not sure yet. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> so, where do you see the military? going? Obviously, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, there are a lot of constraints also. Um, say we manage to you know, guide that all in a good way. What's the military going to be like and what's going to be different? Um, what's going to be different, I think, is that we're going to team up a lot more with uh, humans and machines. Um, and then it doesn't need to be a physical machine, like a, a robot carrying your uh, your gear. Uh, but it can also be uh, a machine assisting you in your uh, military planning process. Um, that actually presenting some scenarios to you or calculating through scenarios um, for you to, to decide as a human, for, okay, so this is this is the effect that I want to achieve. And maybe if you have some variables that, that could be changing along the, the scenario you can you can take that into account beforehand instead of running into it during the operation um, also like uh, the use of large data which I'm not sure that we're using right now but could be using mm-hmm. is um, if you have a lot of video uh, and you want to use an AI system to go through all that video and only to instead of a human doing looking at the screen all day you could also do, have the computer do that um, and actually only ask the human to look at specific examples or maybe it's not sure about something it's all or maybe it's strange there's an object it shouldn't be there um, and then you can team up with a machine more. And how do you feel that's going to change um, the day-to-day job of people in the military? Um, I hope we can use those systems uh, to make our work a little bit safer. Uh, for example, if you have demining robots that can help you um, do those tasks, if you have a lot of uh, computers helping you in decision making or taking out the dull parts like watching through video, I think they can assist us a lot. I'm not sure if it's going to change on a, on a uh, 
um, very hard speed that we're, we're certainly somehow in some sci-fi scenario doing everything differently. Mm-hmm. But I think we should start using those systems and building up trust and see where are the benefits and results and effects in our military operations. Yeah, start small. Start small and then get some uh, get some experience with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So to get to that future um, where humans are supported by machines and maybe the job is even more exciting than it is now... What are the biggest challenges you see that need to be addressed? Yeah, I think the the, the biggest challenge uh, that needs to be addressed is um, I think we have to move forward in the discussion uh, that we have right now. So we have to um, look at not be opposed or pro and very black and white and two stances, but get the debate more together, get more empirical data, more practical data and see uh, which types we think are acceptable. Is it acceptable to use on the water at sea? What type of land operations? What is it acceptable in the cyber domain? Or um, is it uh, also acceptable if you have um, air air, uh, missions? So I'm not... We have to gather, yeah, this maybe the scientists talking, but have to g- gather a lot more data uh, than we have right now and to build up trust. Because finally, um, we have to, if we as military have to rely on systems to aid us in our operations, we really have to trust uh, those systems um, that they do that what we intend them to do and not do anything that is, has unintended consequences or do anything that, that damages our operations. Ilse Verdiese. Armed Forces Officer and AI Researcher on the importance of debating especially the hard questions in order to move forward. Well, I'm off to watch everything on Kanta's Reclist and reflect some more on the moral teachings of our friendly neighborhood superhero. Follow me for more on bnr.nl slash AI podcast or on your favorite podcast app.